Yes, but tonight you were especially good. Well, when I'm good, I'm very good. But when I'm bad, I'm better. You are listening to the official podcast of the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival, where we brought an analysis of stigmatized creative expression in film, art, and literature to understand the misunderstood. Your host is Miguel Rodriguez. Reporting another podcast from the Turner Classic Movies Classic Film Festival in Hollywood, California. The year is 2015, but we're watching movies from all over the century. I'm here talking to a friend of mine who runs his own website. I'm going to have you introduce yourself and briefly tell me about your website name and, and what it's all about. My name is Danny Reed. I write a blog called Precode.com. That's P-R-E-C-O-D-E.com. It's a site dedicated to the early 1930s film from Hollywood. It was a time before mass censorship of the early 30s. What happened was a lot of really bad things in Hollywood led to moral outrage all throughout the country that caused films to be censored and kind of trimmed down from their more salacious elements. So when you watch movies from the early 1930s, you're going to see a lot of stuff that you wouldn't see later. If you're used to watching movies like Casablanca or Sunset Boulevard or anything from the more traditional classic era of the 1940s, you'll be really surprised at what they could get away with in the 1930s. There are quite a few classic pre-code films, King Kong, The Thin Man, Grand Hotel, and then there are films that are called classic just because of how pre-code they are, like Night Nurse, Babyface, uh, Story of Temple Drake, Convention City, stuff like that. So when did you first discover pre-code, and what is it that inspired you to focus on that area? Um, I first discovered pre-code, well, I'd watched, obviously, the big ones, like uh, King Kong and Grand Hotel. And um, when I started my own movie blog with a couple friends back uh, about five years ago, uh, we just were, I was trying to do a variety of things just out of interest, and I finally tracked down the uh, Warner Home Video release of Forbidden Hollywood. And I watched The Divorcee with Norma Shearer. <laughs> and excellent. I was, it's great. I was, like, stunned by it. Um, and then I watched it followed up with Free Soul and everything else in that collection, which is like female, uh, just all these very women-centered films. And it really hit my nerve. This is probably the 10th, 2009, 2010. This was really when the Great Recession was happening. There's this very palpable feeling of things falling apart. I would just moved to California, and you could, like, the neighborhood I lived in that saw the house prices drop by a third. 2008. Yeah, it was probably like a year or so after that, and I was getting really frustrated because there's no movies that were coming out that were dealing with that. I felt like Hollywood was kind of sweeping on the run. You know, years later, you know, it just it takes two or three years for that stuff to pop into the production cycle. Right. But back then, I was just had this really sensitive feeling. Like, and when I watched the movies of the Depression, which are about strong people trying to survive this really horrific, like stunning events. You know, in 1933, a quarter of the entire population of the United States is out of work. A quarter of the male population of the United States is out of work. It's just nuts like just how much they went through and watching these movies they can be very glamorous they can be grand hotel with garbo and barrymore and the great beautiful sensual moments but they can also be stuff like heroes for sale which is a remarkable like barely not probably not even 80 minutes probably like closer to 70 minute film where you go through this man's entire life from being injured in world war one trenches to becoming addicted to morphine to losing his job to finally getting back to get on his feet and getting married and opening in like a factory and then his factory falls apart and then he goes back and becomes homeless and then he starts a charity he disappears and it's just you get so much out of these movies and uh it can be very gritty and very like heartfelt and i think that's what really drew me to pre-code cinema is that they lack a lot of they're they can be wry and they can be kind of sarcastic but they lack a lot of cynicism of modern films and so i just really appreciate that 
It is interesting to try to view these films through the eyes of 1931, 1930, 1932, 1933. And it helps actually if you know the Hayes Code. Oh, yeah. Right? And know exactly what was absolutely forbidden <laughs> and compare that to what was happening in films before. In the film you just mentioned, why don't you talk about some of the Hayes Code rules that may have been broken? Well, Hayes Code is basically um, two Catholic... Uh, well, one's a clergyman, the other one was a producer of a motion picture magazine, got together and wrote up this code for Hollywood and says, okay, you guys got to adopt this. Basically, there's always a problem with getting any kind of censorship to come out of Hollywood was that the studios really had no incentive to dumb down. The audience would really go for scandalous content, um, even though moral groups were always constantly outraged. So it wasn't until 1934 when the moral groups kind of were able to band together and like kind of enforce this on the studios, making Storm them... Storm the gates. Storm the gates, yes. Uh, kind of usurp the motion production, the production code office and start running the asylum themselves. But uh, so the case code itself, and it was not the first attempt at self-censorship. Big problem at the time was that in I think 1911, uh, it was ruled by the Supreme Court that films were not free speech. Yeah. So there's always the threat, and there always was government censors. Like several states, especially like New York, just cut films to pieces. Like it didn't have copyright law. Yeah, yeah, early on, yeah. So there was always this really big fear that the government, and they always went back to it, would just start censoring movies and saying what you could and couldn't do, which is horrifying. So this code was put together, and it was initially kind of agreed on by the studios, but they started ignoring it again. It wasn't until 1934 where they could push it. The code itself is very Catholic. Um, yeah. <laughs> you can imagine what's in it. Yeah, so, I mean, it's like no narcotic use. Um, so there's, there's your morphine out the window. Right. The real sticking point is there's a line like, any motion picture should not lower the standards of an audience that watches it, yeah. which is completely vague, but is very... When you're a censor, you can use that to mean anything you want it to mean. In addition to that, aren't there some really specific things? Like if a man and a woman are on the same bed, at least one foot yeah. should be on the ground. Actually, that's just uh, rumored to be something that the okay, censors so did. Yeah, but it, but that didn't surprise people. Actually, there was a joke that somebody pointed out to the Breen office that that wasn't actually in there. And they said, as long as the filmmakers think it's in there, it's doing fine. And that was at the time. Yeah. That was a rumor circulating in the 30s. Yeah, this is the, you know, nobody actually read the code. They just take it to the production code office of when they're making their movies. Well, it's all and in, they come back. all in gobbledygook, I imagine. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a big problem where the studios would, would um, the studios that did follow the code early on from 30 to 34, we're basically getting punished because they'd send their scripts in, they'd send them back and cut out all the salacious stuff, and then they'd release the movies and they'd be nothing. Yeah. Where the studios that ignored it, like Warner's and Paramount, especially were the two big violators, their movies were gangbusters. Like Gold Diggers of 33, where Joan Blondell's wearing like a negligee that you can clearly see some stuff. Yeah. Um, or what else? There's so many, like Story of Temple Drake, which Paramount released, which is all about rape and these horrible... It's really dark. I don't want to get into it because people don't believe me when I explain the story of Temple Drake. But uh, there's these really dark and nasty movies that um, you definitely cannot get away with just a few years later. I mean, it's like, uh, I've said this before, uh, and in fact, I'm doing a podcast for your blogathon mm -hmm. where we said this, but it's very similar to what happens in the 70s with the exploitation movement. Mm -hmm. And even in the 60s where that started going around in small troops around the country showing these really, really raunchy things. Yeah. And possibly responding to similar societal pressures. I was always under the impression that, those, like Paramount, for example, was getting away with it because these are the movies that during the Great Depression, mm. people would still shell out some money. To oh, see. yeah. Uh, yeah. Mae West was a big instigator in this. Like, uh, I'm No Angel, She Done Him Wrong. People don't remember this, that She Done Him Wrong was nominated for Best Picture. Uh -huh. Mostly because it's awful. 
but um, <laughs> Mae West, and she's just had this. She like um, her. Fa- she put a play on Broadway in the nineteen teens, like probably maybe it was the twenties actually, called Sex. And in the play, it got bad reviews, but it was just so infamous. And West had such a manner about her that it was a huge hit. And it actually got shut down, and she got sent to jail for like a week. They said she was a good prisoner. But that probably made it made her infamous. Yeah, it popular. made yeah. So the Hayes office, like when May, when Paramount was like, maybe we should hire this May West person. I think she'd probably bring in some money. Hay office like flipped out, and they like tried to for years. They did their best to make sure she didn't come out there. And in thirty three, things are so bad. Paramount finally ignores them. They put her in like uh, night after night in thirty two. And then uh, they put her in, like, starring roles in I'm No Angel and She Done Him Wrong. Mm-hmm. And they're just massive hits. Like, I think they're one or one and two of the years they came out. And she is her person, uh, you, I assume people have heard of Mae West, obviously. Yes. Even nowadays, like, image memes of just Mae West are there so popular. There will be some clips in the show. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you can't escape that Mae West voice. <laughs> yeah. When I'm good, I'm good. When I'm bad, I'm better. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so... Yeah, there's this real, like, especially in 33 when things were at the low point until, like, I think 37 it got worse again. But it wasn't as bad because Roosevelt was actually dealing with it, whereas Hoover was a little more ineffective. Um, but, like, 33, there's this real apex of film. And I think it's a better, personally, I think it's a better year than 39, which a lot of people say. But yeah, I've, I've heard that said before, including Bruce Goldstein. Oh, yeah. Head of Rialto. Who's pre-code. 101 last year. 101 last year. Yeah, I, I didn't get to see I wasn't here last year. Uh, but. Yeah, we'll talk about more about the festival in a second. But uh, but he essentially said exactly what you just said. I really want to meet him. He did a presentation pre-code 101 and then Godzilla. Yeah. Both of which were high points of last year. Fantastic. Yeah, I saw him do the, the quiz thing. And he was really funny. Like, oh, he's great. He's uh, great. Yeah, it's the 33 stuff gets a little a lot more scandalous because that's like the Mae West movies, and that's Story of Temple Drake and Convention City, which is famous for being a lost movie, right. and it's famous because it was because the rumors around it being lost are like it was so scandalous they had to burn every copy. Uh-huh. I mean, it's not true. We have the script. No. We know what was actually it's in it. Like, it's, it's a yeah. marketing ploy, right? Yeah, it's yeah. It's like them talking about. Uh, it's hopefully somebody helping somebody find it somewhere. <laughs> but it's like them talking about Boris Karloff and Frankenstein having to wear a sheet over his head when he wasn't filming because <laughs> it was too horrible to look at. <laughs> I never heard that. Yeah, it's great. There's even publicity photos of someone walking around by hand with a sheet on his head. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's brilliant. Oh, man. Because yeah, they know what's wrong. And it makes sense that 33 would be more salacious yeah, because actually, it comes to a head. Right? Yeah, it gets to a head. Actually, 34 is like kind of going off the rails. Like they know, yeah. like early 34, they kind of realized that there's going to be a reckoning because that's when the Legion of Decency was founded. Right. And the Catholic Legion of Decency knew how to work political groups. They knew how to scare the studios, which no other organization had really been able to do at that point. So they actually really started hammering it down. It also, in 1933, a movie came out that was a really big surprise success, and that was Little Women oh, yeah. with Catherine Hepburn. And it's very wholesome, very family-friendly. I think Catherine Hepburn's like, Christopher Columbus, and that's her swear word. Um, so you can imagine it's vastly different than a lot of the movies I, I usually talk about. Um, and that was a huge success. So late 30s, Hollywood moves a lot more towards book adaptations and costume movies because... They can at least say, we want this we want this little salacious detail because it's in the book. Like, right. We can't make Mary Antoinette where she doesn't fall in love with Tyrone Power or whatever. Exactly. But in 34, it really starts going off the rails. So there's more like family-friendly stuff. Uh, first Shirley Temple vehicles. Little Miss Marker is pre-code, which uh, is fun because there's she's like that's one of her big first vehicles. But it's, it's kind of a little bit salacious. But Shirley Temple starts taking off because this big icon of purity and you know, childhood innocence. And then, uh, but there's also stuff coming out in 34, like Search for Beauty, which they comb the world for the 34 most beautiful people. Oh, all white, whatever. Yeah, 34's most beautiful people. And it ends with this very, like, weird triumph of the will dance show. <laughs> and it's just like, 
you know, staring off into space, like very sparse, and it's nuts. It's just all about, I think one point the female leader, I can't remember, I'm sorry, is looking through binoculars, and you just see him pan down to Buster Crab's crotch, <laughs> just staring at it, and you're like... Unbelievable. Yeah, and yeah. they, oh, man, and Toby Wing plays like a, uh, an innocent girl who gets caught up in this magazine, scandalous magazine, and they show, show her getting painted, and she's like, being like being held like she's getting raped by a man she's like i'm being scandalized <laughs> right and uh, murder at the vanities is another good one where it's this backstage play and um like gold diggers or something but they, the musical numbers are nuts like have you ever seen it i have yeah okay oh, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah they have like sweet marijuana where uh-huh. she dances around she sings about the wonders of pots and i think it's kitty carlisle or somebody I don't no 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 it's not i don't remember who it is okay yeah. um but she later said that she thought they were talking about a musical instrument. <laughs> but also during that number, they yes, have women pop out of can flowers. Can put that in quotes? No, I mean... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they have women pop out of flowers who are just wearing their hands on their breasts. Yes. And it's... They're gorgeous women. But it's just like, you know, you don't have to have that in a movie. That's only there for the... Uh-uh. Mm-hmm. So... They know their audience. Yeah, exactly. Which yeah. is... Like, well, horny men and women, like, really sadomasochistic women is the pre-code audience. In the book... Foucault's Pendulum by Umberto Eco. Okay. There's this uh, mention of, and again, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's something along the line of you can learn more or the most about a culture by reading about what was prohibited. Oh, that's a good line. Yeah. Yeah. And it's absolutely true. Yeah, because what happens in 34 is that um, the Code Administration, which was under William Hayes, who was a former postmaster general, just a very nice Protestant guy. Uh, he, he was kind of the point man, but he doesn't really, like, into the censoring, like, you know, I gotta censor stuff. His job had kind of been usurped by uh, Joseph Breen, who was very Catholic. He's yes. kind of worked Breen behind, is, yeah. yeah, he's like the villain in all this. He worked <laughs> behind the scenes to kind of get the code off the ground so he could right. force the Hollywood studios to bend to his own will. And he would, you know, he'd say, like, the co- like he's anti-Semitic, and he would say, like, don't don't bother reading the code, I am the code, which right. is like Judge Dredd stuff. Just yes. see him going around the studios saying that. From the very beginning of the picture, we worked with producers, authors, scenario writers, directors, and all who are connected with the production, to the end that the finished product may be free from reasonable objection, and that our pictures may be the vital and wholesome entertainment we all want these to be um so it's very catholic oriented which is weird because from reading raised catholic and reading more about it, you understand that this violence is a lot more acceptable than any kind of sex any kind of romance or anything very so true. so a lot like later in the 30s and 40s you have these very neutered movies a lot of the time that are can get really kind of dirt like gordy but you, you but lose that, you lose the humanity comes in. yeah yeah <laughs> it, it's, it is it's a the sex becomes innuendo right. and veiled yeah. in sharp language. And some people really like that. I, I, I'm not going to put it past them. No, but no, I love it. Yeah. However, uh, I love it because of the cleverness of how they're getting past the censors. Yeah. But uh, but you're right. But I think the point is similar to what you're saying is the sex becomes veiled. Yeah. But the violence is yeah. right in front of you. Yeah. And I mean, the, the code evolves throughout this time, yes. too. Like, there's changes. Like, World War II means that they allow more things than they used to, and it's hard to for them to dial it back after a while. Yeah. And the Catholic Church loses its power, the Legion of Decency. So by that's why in the 1960s it like completely unravels, and you get the good movies come out in late 1960s, <laughs> as opposed to the early 1960s, which is just a it disaster. It's completely insane. Yeah. It's kind of like a, a 20 or 21 year, someone turning 21. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. They just like, you know one totally one week it's Doctor Doolittle and then let's do the Graduate. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's pretty wild, but it's fascinating when you read about a survey of films and how it evolves like that. Yeah, that's that's what I like doing, especially since I'm doing very specific era. Mm-hmm. Is like learning how films change from 1930 to just 1934. Is it's because it starts with the talkies finally kind of getting on their feet. Because 1927 is the jazz singer, but it wasn't all talkies immediately like right. isn't until like 1929 early 30 where it's all talkies and 1930 is pretty much like a hundred hundred musicals come out in 1930 mm-hmm. and in 1930 when there's like 10 because the musicals are awful <laughs> early sound technology could not record high pitches which made high pitch singing very unbearable to sit through and then just there was very bad pacing like operettas were very popular in big cities but they're incomprehensible um there's just so much, you know, the Dawn of Technicolor panel kind of did a really good job covering yeah. the issues because studios were like putting a lot of money into Technicolor and musicals and they put a lot of money into Technicolor sequences just for musicals to show off, you know, be like the pristine super attraction. Yeah, it was, and it was more marketing. Yeah, it was more marketing, yeah. but the problem is that Technicolor was so overwhelmed that these movies would take forever to come out and there just wasn't enough and the quality would be so bad that people are going to see musicals and they can't watch it because it's so, the print's yeah. so ugly. And it, it also how uh, there would be some that would be popular, mm-hmm. and they would they would get orders for more and more and more and more yeah. popular older prints that they couldn't keep up with the demand for the newer films. Yeah, that yeah. Was also from that dawn of yeah, actually, I read the book and it was really really instructive. Like, because I'd always I'd watched early than you know I watched movies from 1930 and I'm like, why are these so terrible? And that kind of helped explain a lot of the issues they were having. Right, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I par- I purchased the book yesterday. I can't wait. Yeah. So as long as we're talking about the Dawn of Technicolor panel, um, you kind of said this already, but this is your first TCM Film Festival. Yes, I am a vir- uh, No, I'm not really a virgin, but you know what I mean. A virgin uh, for TCM Classic Film Festival. Yes. We get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell my wife. Yeah, it's my first time here. Uh, one of those people who always read about everybody going on Twitter. Yeah. These people I know from online, and they always post like the most fun things. And I think last year was the tipping point because they were posting like about the Precode 101. Yeah. And then the really obscure Fox films getting shown because what happens with Fox films is that they ignore their pre-20th century Fox merger content for the most part. So it's a miracle if you ever get to see a Fox pre-code. That's right. And and, um, and they're getting better with their... Well, I'm going to ask you this, actually. But they have their Discoveries series, yeah. which is where you got that Fox pre-code from last year mm-hmm. and where you got a couple of the pre-codes from this year. Yeah, so this year we had Airmail and Don't mm-hmm. Bet on Women. And Don't Bet on Women was delightful. It's like uh, Jeanette McDonald in her only role where she doesn't sing, which I cheered at, but nobody else really did. Um, oh, like ten people. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was great because Una Merkel, Jeanette McDonald. Una um, Merkel. Una Merkel's so... I, I, so awesome. I felt at home when people started applauding when Una Merkel came on yeah. screen. And Roland, they applauded for Roland Young, too, which is not somebody I'd ever expected before. But Only here. Only here, yeah. yeah. So it was, a, it was a really fun movie. I did a write-up of it last night. But it's just very... It's about a love triangle where a man bets that he can't get another man to kiss his wife. And it's all about kind of female loyalty. And whoever introduced it, I don't remember her name, I'm sorry. She was, she's a film preservationist, I believe. Yeah, I can't from recall. From MoMA. Yeah, she talks about how all the women have the best double entendres and best lines, and she's right. Like, Absolutely correct. Yeah, Jeanette yeah. McDonald is just like, you say all women are bad, you say all women are good, they just mm-hmm. be led astray. I'm going to see where I'm at in this spectrum. Yeah. And she's just very, like, I never, like, when Jeanette McDonald's sexy, which does not, like, to some <laughs> people, probably sounds like contradiction. When she is sexy, she's great. 
Yeah. It sounds, and that speech in uh, Don't Bet on Women is very similar. Did you see Why Be Good? I did not. Okay. So, I could not get off that early. <laughs> <laughs> Why Be Good was also a delight. Yeah. So if you haven't seen it, I do, do recommend it. I mean, it's pre-code in the... It's silent that, film, so yeah. yeah. it's a silent film. Uh, 1929, yeah. and it's Pauline Moore's final silent film. It, she has a very similar speech... At the end, of course, on title card. Yeah, but, uh, might be good, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, but uh, the, she says something like, you men, you always want something out of women, and then you, you know, then you give them crap. For yeah, crap. there's actually uh, one of my, one of the pre-codes I saw recently, because I'm going to actually go to New York and do a podcast with some friends about 1933 specifically. Mm-hmm. One of them I watched recently was, like, When Ladies Meet, which is Myrna Loy and Anne Harding. That's a great film. Oh, yeah, because, yeah. yeah. Like, Robert I mean, Montgomery gives that kind of speech where he's like, I convinced yeah. so many women to give up their virtue and hated them afterwards. But here's a thought. Would you say that one of the reasons the censors would have gotten even more inflamed mm-hmm. is because of arguably more feminist ideals coming out of those films? I think that was actually a big issue. I was reading something. I don't remember who wrote it, but the, it was probably Michael Sal. No, it probably wasn't. Anyway, um, they're talking about Mae West, and the problem that people had wasn't so much that she was salacious, but that she was so independent, both as an artist and a woman, and she was so sexually liberated, and that really drove the Catholics crazy that she was becoming an icon. Yeah. And then you have movies, like we said before, like Female, where Ruth Chatterton plays the head of an automobile company. The first two-thirds of that movie, she's just betting every male employee. Mm-hmm. She's doing the Warren William thing he does in Employee's Entrance, but yes. with you know the opposite, gender. the opposite gender. Yeah, yeah. the end of Female. Right. Yeah, and a female completely pulls the rug out, but that's also kind of par for the course because a lot of movies have to do that. Yeah. So they let the, they get to show the, the girls, get to go out and do all these crazy, dirty, raunchy things. In the last act, they have to learn their lesson or go back to their husband. And, right. And they, I think the filmmakers, sometimes they know that that's how cheesy that is. They Like uh, Let Us Be Gay with Norma Shear. Uh-huh. Like she's, the whole movie, she's this freewheeling, wonderful, free spirit. Her husband like ditched her, and she becomes this gorgeous, wonderful woman of the world. And in the, like, the last 30 seconds of the movie, she's like, okay, fine, I'll be your wife again. <laughs> it's like if you just cut off like 30 seconds earlier, you're like, she leaves him, good. <laughs> Tells him to get her, get her away. Yeah, it's like they just tack it on. It's like, okay, let's just forget yeah, about it. We're done with this. Yeah. Okay. Now that you're here yeah. and you had these high expectations, would you say that the TCM Film Festival met your expectations? I enjoyed myself. I had a really good time. I think going in, I'm not a person... I do watch a lot of movies, and I will sit and watch movies at one after another at home. It's just here, it's like a lot more high stress, a lot more competitive, because you have to get in line, you have to kind of fight for it, you have to run over to other screenings. Yeah. And so I think I've had a lot more fun between screenings, catching up with bloggers I've known. Um, I spent all day Saturday hanging out with Christina Rice, who wrote the Andy Borak biography. Mm-hmm. Super cool person. Um, I spent yesterday hanging out with Anna Marie, who writes for a film site. I never even knew of her before I came to this festival. We just saw each other writing in Club CCM, and we just hung out all day like going from movie to movie but uh she's really cool and just like angela at hollywood review there's so many like in jessica and raquel they're just really nice sweet people and you just get this great opportunity to come here and meet and you know i was sitting around the Marie yesterday and like arguing about or talking about Catherine hepburn films and musicals and just all these really obscure things i can't talk to my wife about who god bless her soul does not watch nearly as much movies as i do but there's other people who know all these things. Like we argue about film biographies yeah. and you know stuff like that. So it's just such a great experience to kind of come together and under, like, you know, be with people who kind of 
get you and you can talk to. That is kind of the convention experience or the film festival experience in general, isn't it? You know, yeah. No what kind of convention you're going to when you are in the real world. Yeah. It can be. It can feel rather isolated. Yeah, exactly. That's why I do blogging is because yeah. it gives me an outlet to kind of express myself because I feel like the point of being alive is to be able to add something to humanity, even if mine is just saying, hey, guys, you should watch these movies. Yes. Um, I think that the point is to create something and contribute it to the world. I love blogging. I've always loved writing, yeah. and I didn't really get into it till a few years ago. I wish I had started a lot sooner. But it gives you such a great opportunity to reach out. Seriously, start a blog, get media credentials. It's the best way to come to the TCM Film Festival. Yeah. I was so happy they let me in, too, because that's like, I write about TCM maybe once a month where I just post their schedule and comment on it. Because yeah. I don't get, I live in Japan. So I don't get TCM. I get TCM Australia. I should, I should just Interesting. Which TCM Australia is not fun to watch because they repeat films on a day. Right. Like they show Waltons on Fridays. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just mostly the 1940s Warner Brother catalog, which is not what I'm interested it's in. what that segment is able to get right yeah. for, I assume. Yeah. And so, like, you know, sometimes you'll turn on and be like, they're showing Gone with the Wind twice in a day. And you're like, well, that's half your day. Why Warner Archive Instant works great. Uh, I think I've watched actually a lot of movies that they have up, which is frustrating. But well, yeah, that's right because it gets exhausted. Yeah, you know they're going to add more, but the problem is they add more and they add stuff that they already had up before, which I see. That's true because so. stuff leaves and then comes back. Yeah, yeah, which is great for people who weren't on there since the beginning. But I, I was I was there when they only had like twenty movies or whatever. So. <laughs> yeah, and I like I was I was talking about this with Kelly uh, Irish Jayhawk. Yeah. Uh, she, I was talking about how, like, one month they just put up Bowery Boys movies, yeah. and you're just sitting there cursing at your computer screen. Like, I'm sure somebody out there is really happy to be able to sit, spend this entire month watching 40 Bowery Boy movies, but that is not fucking me. That is no. No. <laughs> because they do the showcase. They do those showcases. They do the showcase, but this was all the movies they added for that month. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think they added a couple more a few days later when they suddenly, like, sensed that maybe we should put something else <laughs> I think they actually put up Arsene Lupin, which is a great pre-code yeah. film with John Barrymore and Lionel. But that's their best. That's my favorite of their collaborations. Wow. Is there any last thoughts for going? Yeah. Uh, TCM Film Festival is wonderful. It's such a gorgeous location. I really lucked out that all my expenses were just in travel, but I came from Japan, so they still weren't cheap. No. Um, but it's such a so much fun. Um, I learned a lot about what kind of I like to go see. I learned. I got to see 42nd Street. And um, I'm not. It's not actually my favorite Busby Berkeley musical by a long shot, but just the experience of seeing that in a huge packed theater with an audience that was really into the film, it actually moved me to tears, which I did not expect at all. But it was just this this feeling like I'm experiencing something I'm never ever going to experience again, and it was like surreal, and I loved it. So we all have it. Yeah. Thank you, Danny, for coming on the show, talking about Precode and your website and uh, and some movies. Yeah, totally. Um, if anybody is listening to this, well, no, let me tell you that. <laughs> Everybody who is absolutely, definitely listening to this, go to Precode.com. That's P-R-E hyphen C-O-D-E dot C-O-M to read the blog all about Precode movies and definitely build, as I said in the last Precode episode, build yourself a watch list because a lot of these films are available kind of a lot of them for the first time in a long time yeah that's why i'm really excited about being here when you know 90s they started doing preco stuff but a lot of it's so hard to do home video media but with like warner archive and youtube um there's a lot of stuff that you can get your hands on like story of temple drake paramount's they did a restoration they're probably never going to release it because it's so controversial on some level um it's like song of the south yeah so 
it's it's a really great time to get into this. I have an essentials list on the site that I'm probably going to update again at some point because I always I always change my mind like every couple weeks. But that's a good place to start. Uh, the Forbidden Hollywood collections from Warner Archive or Warner Brothers and Warner Archive are really great places to start. And there, there's just so much out there, and it's so fascinating to discover. And you will be surprised at what you find. And it's a great way to learn about how things were. You know more about a culture from what was forbidden. <laughs> Follow Danny on Twitter at precode.com. That's dot spelled out D-O-T. And no dash. And no dash. I couldn't afford the dash. Oh, yeah. It's a long, it's a long Twitter handle. Yeah. But it's easy to remember. Yeah. Thanks a lot. And we're going back to the show. Ah, you have a wonderful future. I see a man in your life. What, only one? <laughs>